This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Phil is a good friend of mine and he is a guy I've known for probably about uh, 10 or 12 years. Phil is very different than me. Phil's a little bit older, he is moving towards uh, his 60s and if you were to meet Phil, and I don't know, I, I won't reveal his last name, I don't know if any of you would have met this guy, but Phil is just a special guy, very different. He has tattoos all down his arm that speak of a day when he was a much younger man and was a bit of a rock musician. Uh, Phil is partially deaf and it came, or has come as a result of, again, early days being a, a pretty stellar drummer in a loud rock band. And I talked to Phil, and Phil is one of those guys, I don't know what it is, well, I think I do know what it is, but in speaking with Phil, you will feel like you are the most important person in the room. Phil and I are very, very different on a whole bunch of things. Phil lived a pretty rugged life for his first season. Like I say, the, the look on his face uh, the scars that he has, the, the jaded tattoos speak of a life pretty hard lived. Phil is different from me in that I work in academics. Phil also works at an academic institution, but as a cleaner. I got married a little bit later in life and had children uh, a little bit later. Phil had a daughter at a very, very young age and one that he probably wasn't expecting. I'm theologically pretty conservative. Phil, he is the spirit-filled Pentecostal who every time I talk with him has a word from the Lord of encouragement. Most Sundays you'll find me on the welcoming team at church. That's my job at church. I just shake hands and say good day to people. Phil, you'll find in the Hillsong car park with an orange vest parking cars. I know a lot of people, but I don't know quite as many people who impress me the way that Phil does. And I got to thinking about it. What is it about Phil's life? What is it about Phil that I say, I want to be like Phil? And I think I've worked it out. Phil is a man who exudes grace. God has so touched this guy's life that he cannot but help speak of God's generosity to him. And even though he's got the jaded face and he's got the jaded tattoos and he's an older man, you look at Phil and you know from the sparkle in his eye that God has done something to change this man. And I say, I want more Phil's in my life. I want to be like this guy. And it comes down to this issue of grace. Now, we like to sing about grace. We preach about grace. At the dinner table, we'll say grace. But what does grace look like lived out? What does grace look like lived out? You see, that's the question that we're going to look at tonight. This morning, we looked at the foundation of discipleship being the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes with this radical humility to achieve the radical purposes of God, that he, the one numbered amongst the transgressors, would bring us to himself. 
But as we go through the gospel, and you're going to go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, later in the year, you're going to discover these teachings of Jesus that are radical. And one of the elements that comes through the life of the Lord Jesus is this radical grace. And that's what I'm going to speak about tonight. So to begin with, I'm just going to invite us and not even open your Bibles at this stage. But I want us to think about an account in Matthew's gospel that goes like this. Jesus stepped into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on the mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Hearing this, some teachers of the law said to him, This fellow is blaspheming. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you entertain such evil thoughts in your heart? What is easy to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and began to praise God who had given such authority to man. Going on from there, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, upon hearing this, said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and we are going to be exploring this account. This great story of Jesus' grace. As we come to the passage, as I've suggested... Jesus has given this a rather unconventional, unorthodox way of thinking about disciples. And here, he's going to give us another one of these cases that you were to look at. You say, this is not the way a rabbi, somebody who's going about a movement, should begin. Because we come to this account, and he's going to do all the things that he should not do if we were in charge of writing the Bible. I love the fact, I don't know if you know this, but he talks here about Matthew the tax collector. That is the same guy writing this account, this gospel. And it's going to be really interesting what this guy leaves in the account and what he leaves out. But there in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to focus on verses 9 to 13, we have this issue of Jesus calling a tax collector. Now, every year, the Reader's Digest, which my grandmother used to read, they do annually, they still apparently exist, but they go around and they interview and survey the most distrusted professions of people living in Australia. I'll go through them. Lawyers, and sorry if this is one of your careers. <laughs> Lawyers, 
business executives are not to be trusted. Taxi drivers, real estate agents, car salesmen, but topping the list, politicians. If you were to create a list in the days of Jesus at the very top of unreliable, untrustworthy people would be the tax collector. Three reasons why people didn't like tax collectors. The first reason was that the tax collector had a loyalty to Rome. Now here, ironically, this guy's named Matthew. In another gospel, he's called Levi. And in, it's the same guy, just like Simon is sometimes called Simon, other times he's called Peter. They would often have one or two names that they would be known by. But this guy, interestingly enough, his name's Matthew or Levi. Do you remember in the Old Testament who was to be the priestly tribe? Remember the Leviticus? And we've got a guy named Levi, and he's working for the opposition. He's working for the Romans who are suppressing his people. This is not a good start. He's a tax collector. And this is one of the downsides of tax collectors. They work for the man. Okay? And they would charge their fellow Jewish people taxes and they would then give that money to the Romans. The second thing wrong with tax collectors was that to make their money, they would not just take money for the Romans to give to the Romans, but any extra they could get on top of that went into their pockets. So they would often charge a tax, but they would increase it just a little bit to put it in their own pockets. They weren't trustworthy people. But the third reason tax collectors weren't accepted in that particular culture was that by nature, being on a strip of road where people were traveling all these different directions, you would have dealing with all sorts of people. Greeks, Romans, those from Assyria. You would have Jews there. But we know from the Jewish scripture that Jews and Gentiles were not to meet. And yet, if you're a tax collector, you dealt with everybody. And that rendered you socially unclean. And this is the sort of guy that Jesus comes along to. And we read, he says, follow me. Now, here's what I would write if I was Matthew. I might have said this. Jesus, as he was going, saw Matthew and said, come follow me. But that's not what he wrote. As Jesus was going, he saw Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Matt, if you're writing this, drop that part out. Don't, don't include those sort of details about your own shame. He goes on a little bit further and we discover that he has dinner... And he invites all these other sinners and tax collectors to join him. Matt, if you're writing this, don't include, include those details. Matthew doesn't say Jesus came along and he called Matthew and said, come follow me. And Matthew left a lucrative position at great sacrifice to himself and follow Jesus. No, he just records that Jesus says, Matthew at the tax collector's booth, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Why does Matthew have no shame in talking about this account? I think it's because Matthew has experienced genuine grace of God. 
and he doesn't forget about his past. He doesn't minimize his past, but he wants to show you how good this Jesus is. Now, can you imagine the scene? I don't know about you, but it says here in the, I quoted from the NIV 2011. In the NIV 1984 translation, it has the word sinners in apostrophes. Okay, this is just kind of a, he invited other tax collectors and sinners. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's just, I think, uh, and I think the NIV 84 picks it up, it's just a collective of really dodgy folks. We don't know who's there. Can you imagine this? Jesus is there. Second member of the Trinity. Eternal son of God. And he's there at this party and there's plenty of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't know what the Hebrew equivalent of the F word is, but maybe that's being dropped. Jesus is there with rank sinners. Maybe there's people there. Jesus doesn't say, look, I'm not coming to your house dinner for dinner, mate, until you get those inappropriately dressed people. They're causing me to stumble. Don't invite them. Jesus doesn't say, well, listen, listen, clean up your act. And when you stop swearing, you stop drinking so much wine and you're responsible, then you can come and eat with me. No, there is something going on where Matthew has been so impacted by Jesus' grace that he wants to extend that grace to other people. He wants other tax collectors, other sinners to come and experience what he has. Now, notice what this account does not say. It doesn't say that everybody left there as followers of Jesus. But there is something compelling about the life of our Lord Jesus where sinners feel valued and sinners feel compelled to spend time with this one who we know as our Lord. Friends, grace will do that to you. When you have an experience and you come to know just what you've been forgiven for and how God has lavishly extended his mercy to you, that can't but help transform the way that you say, I've got to pass that on to somebody else. Sometimes I meet Christians in different contexts who just aren't excited about the Lord. Now, I know excitement looks different for everybody, right? I'm one of those guys, as you probably tell. I watch State of Origin football. I'm a mad football fan. It doesn't matter, any sport. I, I, I love sport. I get right into it. And, and I've got this friend of mine named Stu. And Stu comes over and we watch State of Origin together. And we watch the footy and I'm yelling at the TV you know, I'm yelling at the refs, I'm all, and we score a try in the corner, and I'm doing my lucky dance. And I look over, and Stu says, that's great. Okay. But I know Stu's passionate. But I meet a lot of Christians, and you don't have to be loud, and you don't have to be boisterous, but if you've experienced the grace of God, and you've truly got your head around it, it's got to do something to your heart. And I meet some Christians who aren't excited and I want, you know, they look like they've been baptised in lemon juice. <laughs> and I want to say, brother. You know, and it's interesting, we don't all have to have a story to experience the grace of God. I remind people that in the New Testament, you do find people like the Apostle Paul, dramatically converted. But then you find others like Timothy, who since they've been a child, have known the ways of the Lord. But interestingly, Paul will still speak to Timothy about the grace of God shown to him. 
And whether they had a Timothy experience or a Paul experience, the grace of God needs to shape us. That's why Peter, when he writes the letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Not just the knowledge, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Matthew understood it. He wanted his friends to experience it. I read a book uh, a while ago by uh, a popular author named Max Licardo. Max Licardo tells a story of one of his practices when he was pastoring a church where at the end, uh, he's a pastor in Texas, and one of the things he would do at the end of every service, he would get a, a bunch of $1 notes. And he would, just as a, a symbol of grace, he would say, listen, if you're visiting or you're anybody uh, and you want to experience some grace, you can come down the front, I'll give you something that you don't deserve. Okay, and he, he had a dollar, okay, so we need to put it in perspective. It wasn't 50 bucks, it was one dollar. But he did it almost as a bit of an experiment. He just would give out dollars to people. And so one day he made this call out. If you're, you're visiting today, we'd love to have you stay for a cup of tea. And he'd spoken about grace and he said, if you'd like a dollar, you come and I'll give you a dollar. And as it was the usual custom, there'd be a scrambling of teenagers, you know, wanting to go down there, being held back by their parents. But there was a lady who came down, Mrs. Myrtle. And this lady, Mrs. Myrtle, uh, came down and she, she received the dollar. And Max Licardo looked at her and says, there you go. It's grace. I'm giving it to you. Thank you, she said. Later on that week, Mr. Licardo ran into this lady, Mrs. Myrtle, down the street. And he said, oh, how did it go? How'd you spend your dollar? She said, actually, I didn't spend my dollar. She said, after you gave it to me, I went and sat down uh, back in my seat and a teenager asked me, can I have that? And she said, well, you know what? I received it for free. I'm going to give it to you for free. Friends, that's what the grace of God does. It moves us to say, I want to share this with others. What does grace look like? What does it look like in this context? For Jesus, and I think for us, radical, radical grace means loving sinners. Radical grace means loving sinners. It means going above and beyond to share that which was given to us, freedom, forgiveness, joy, and sharing that with others. Have you experienced that grace? Now, I, I married, and some of you know this, and this is not being, me being trite or falsely uh, false with you. I married up, genuinely. <laughs> My, it's true. Amen. <laughs> it's true. My wife is one of the most gracious people you'd ever meet. I remember a few years ago, we were having a party. We were living in the inner west in Glebe. I was working as a pastor at a church, and we were having a birthday party. And my daughter, it just so happened, she was in a particular preschool just down the road, and we invited a bunch of people. And there was one little boy there who was coming, and we invited his carers, and it just so happened his carers was his gay grandmother. And so we're there at the, the curatage, as the Anglicans call it, in the church house. And we're there, we've got a nice yard, and we invite everybody over for this party. And I remember sitting down with these two ladies, probably in their mid-50s. And my wife and I discussed beforehand, people are coming over, let's love them in the Lord and just share the, the joy of Christ. And I remember sitting down with these two ladies, and they began to throw little grenades my way. 
Well, what do you do for a living, Malcolm? They already knew. (laughs) Oh, work for the church. We all know what the church thinks of us. I, I didn't say anything. I wanted to listen to them. I genuinely wanted to listen to them. They had some things and clearly there were some things in their life where they'd been hurt. And part of me wanted to, whoa, 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 I wanted to defend. I wanted to, well, it's actually, no, we don't all. And they just kept lobbing them. We know about this. We know about that. And I looked over to my wife and she gave me that look. Malcolm, shut up. You don't need to say anything. And my wife said, can I get you some more drink? Would you like some more food? And she got up and she served them. And my wife just oozed grace towards these folks. You know, a month later, we found ourselves, not in Glee, but just not too far away in Newtown, at a party where we were the only heterosexual couple. There was lots of folks there. And as we talked with them and began to talk with them, these were people who need, just like everybody else, to hear about the grace of Jesus. Now, how did we end up at the party? I'll tell you how we did. Somebody, my wife, is convinced that when you've been touched by mercy, it doesn't matter what sort of background you're from, God wants to extend mercy to you. And as we spent time hearing broken people, do we want to point them to Christ? Yes. Is it always well received? No. But just as Jesus, there was something compelling about him where he felt he could do that. And we know that he gets slandered for that. Friends, do you have any friends who even are sinners? And I use the sinners like the 84. Because I fear the more I'm in a Christian bubble, the more I lose the fact that people out there, regardless of their background, need God's mercy. One of the things I do, I try to do every week, my old neighbours have moved. Uh, They were our neighbours for about 10 years. He's 95, doesn't speak much English except swear words, and he always uses them incorrectly. (laughs) Part of me wants to correct him, but I don't. He's Italian. He's married to a German lady. She's 87. They need the grace of God. They're coming to the end of days and there's no joy in their life. I can't give them anything, but I can point them to a saviour who can. There's something compelling about this account in Matthew. Matthew understood the grace of God and he introduced others to this grace of God. Friends, grace means loving sinners. But the second thing I see here in this passage is that grace not only means loving sinners, grace means loathing legalism. Loathing legalism. You see, as I read this passage, I'd love to say, yeah, I'm with the disciples on this one. I'm with Jesus. I'm a good sinner lover. I'm actually more like the Pharisees. My heart is more in that disposition of there's people who are in and then there's people who are out. And I'd love to say that I identify with Jesus and his disciples. Listen to what it says in the New Living Translation. It says this. The the Pharisees saw this. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, these are the religious leaders. These are the people who are meant to have the big heart. 
who have seen the grace of God in the Old Testament. But rather than using the scriptures as a launching point to say, look how we live differently. And people say, why do you live so differently? Let us tell, tell you about God. Rather than using it as a launching pad to say why they were different, they used it as a wall. You know what? You're sleeping together. You know what? You've got to struggle with alcohol. And often we say, you've got to clean up your act before you come to Jesus or before you come to church. Friends, the grace that's revealed here disturbs the religious guys, right? They, they look at it, oh, what's your, decide, what's your teacher doing with this, these sort of people? And I love Jesus' response here. He reminds them that sick people need a doctor, healthy people don't. The irony is the, the Pharisees here also have that sickness, but they don't see it. And you can't help somebody who doesn't see that. But his response, but go and learn. Ouch. That's one of the sayings we have in our family. Or, you know, a couple of years ago, it was snap. Ouch. This is a zinger. This is what they do for a living. They learn the scriptures. Go and learn, Jesus says. Wow. You see, they knew stuff, but it hadn't impacted their life. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. What is it? Go and learn. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God is more interested in your heart and your character than your actions. When you get the heart right, that is built upon this foundation that we talked about today, that you realize it's all about Christ, it's all about his honor, and you let that wash over your life and you come with empty hands and you say, I don't know much, but I know that I was once blind, but now I see. That works far better than, than saying, you know what? I grew, grew up in, I know, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Do you want me to tell you more of the Tanakh, the Torah? I even know my Hebrew paradigms. Yiktal, niktal, tiktal. Can I show you the scriptures that you do not know? If you've got all of that but you don't have a heart, you're wasting time. Likewise, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says if you know all of this stuff, and even if you give your body to be burnt, if you don't have love, you're like a clanging gong. I don't want to be a clanging gong. I don't want to be just a know-it-all who tells people, you know what, you need to change. I want to be a Matthew. Let me tell you the story of how Jesus impacted me. Unfortunately, I'm far more like these Pharisees. I like to say in, out, black, white. This is what spirituality looks like. It doesn't look like this. Then that's not to say that we don't believe in teaching. But the big challenge for these Pharisees was that it was all here, but it wasn't impacting their heart and how they reached out to others. I need to learn to loathe legalism. That excludes people and it sets these false barriers and that push people away from God or paint a picture of God sort of being as the divine school teacher who's got a ruler like the fun police and wants to whack you across the knuckles if you start smiling. Because that's the picture people have of God. 
And it's often because we as Christians live that out. Rather, I would like them to see people like Phil. Doesn't matter who you are, Phil will make you feel important. And he's just exuding this grace that comes as a result of meeting King Jesus. Now, what do we do with this, right? I think we're reminded of these two things. So we've got this radical grace that means we need to love sinners, of which we are one. But secondly, we need to loathe legalism. Now, for this particular passage, there might be different emphases for you as individuals. Some of you might say, look, you know, loathing other people and and setting false standards for them is not my deal. Maybe for you, this reminder comes, hey, are you passing that gift on to others? You need to remind your soul you've been saved. Not through works of righteousness, which we have done, it says in Titus, but according to his mercy, he has washed us, saved us and washed us with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. I love Psalm 103. We sing it sometimes, bless the Lord, O my soul. You remember that one? And he says it multiple times, bless the Lord, O my soul. And the thing I like about that, he's talking to himself and he's talking to his soul and it's like he's chugging up the engine. Come on, soul, work yourself up, warm up here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget his benefits. Remember him who's forgiven your sins, who healed your disease, and he sort of chugs it up. For some of you tonight, that's what this scripture's saying. Remember the grace of God given to you. Chug your soul. And this might be just a word of reminder to say, remember what God has done and share that with other people. And I'm not just talking about the moment you met Jesus, but those daily graces that you experience. This is why it was very important in Judaism. They would put things on their door. They would, they would at the dinner table, talk about God's faithfulness. It was always on their lips. Why? They didn't want to forget the grace of God to them. I pray that Anchor Church would be a culture and a context where it's not weird to talk about what God is doing in your life. I've been, I have to say, I've been to Bible studies before when we open the scriptures and, and the questions asked, what is God teaching you at the moment? And you can hear crickets. May that not be true of you. May the grace of God be on your lips as you tell these gospel stories, not for patting yourself on the back, but like Matthew, making much of the Lord Jesus. This passage could be reminding you of this. For others, it might not be a reminder of the grace of God, but it might be a recommitment to loving other people. Because if you're like me, again, I see, I'd love to see myself in the disciples or Jesus' generosity, but far too often, I'm more like the Pharisees. Years ago, I remember, this is a fair comment too. Years ago, some friends of mine, I invited them to church. I said, come to, I knew there was a a nice service coming up where they're going to share the gospel. And I said to my my, uh, friends, so why don't you come with me to church? Firstly, they said this. We don't have the right clothes to come to church. Don't worry about the clothes, I said. I said, it's on next week. I said, I'll pick you up. You don't need to worry about what you wear. La-di-da-di-da. And they said to me, you know what? We'll come to church if you come to the pub and do karaoke. (laughs) And I thought, I can do an Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) And I thought, fair comment, right? I'm asking them to get out of a comfortable zone to come to church. 
And it wasn't even uncomfortable for me. I wonder sometimes we start things like we've got a, a Christian football team, we have a church's comp for this. Sometimes I wonder, even in your gospel communities, I hope you really genuinely are looking to invite people to partake of what God is doing in your lives. Because the big challenge can be we can get so comfortable doing things which are all good that we can forget that we were once on the outside looking in. Don't forget that. Recommit to that. My friend Phil, the drumming Pentecostal, he knows the one that has been forgiven much loves much. My prayer is that we as God's people would exude this same grace that Jesus shows us. Loving sinners and loathing legalism. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder through your servant Matthew who wrote these scriptures for us of just the impact that you made on his life. That he was willing even to share about shameful things, being a tax collector. Because at the end of the day, he wasn't concerned with who he was. He was concerned with who he had become because of the Christ. And I pray that we would each find confidence, not in our own ability, but in the fact that we are part of your family because you have adopted us, you have called us, you've extended that grace. And just as we ask you for forgiveness, I just pray that that same grace that you've extended to us would burden our hearts that we might extend it to those in our networks. Be it that work colleague who's kind of awkward. Be it that person who's been hurt by the church as an antagonistic. Be it that young person who just seems to be wandering nowhere. Lord, give us hearts that are broken and full of compassion that we might not be like the Pharisees, but that we would go and learn what it means to love mercy, not just to go through the rituals of sacrifice. Grace us with this, we ask, for Jesus' reputation. Amen.